Today we're talking with Brian Crawford, Head of Government Affairs for Age in LA. Brian is talking with lawmakers on a daily basis, negotiating on the industry's behalf. I think in this political season, it's important to know what policies are being discussed on Capitol Hill and how we will be impacted. Brian is a wealth of knowledge. Let's jump right in. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we're hearing that a lot, right? The longer this thing just continues, we, we got a whole new norm that we thought was going to be a quick blip, and now it's a new norm. Yeah, I mean, the, every, a lot of states are trending in the wrong direction. I mean, here in Maryland, uh, our governor just imposed new restrictions. Virginia did. I mean, Iowa and a bunch of other states in middle America are now having huge issues. So, what? I mean, we're diving into this. But what, what does that do for travel, right? I mean, you lock down restrictions. That's a big killer for our industry and other small businesses. But kills us. Kills totally us. kills us. I mean, so restaurants now, indoor dining that were that was at say fifty percent capacity is down to twenty five. Some places it's they're shutting down all the bars, the gyms, the restaurants. Um, you know, we already had virtually zero business travel. Right. Um, and so now that we're heading towards the winter months, most markets aren't going to see any leisure. So our like the STR numbers for unoccupancy are dropping precipitously. So it's it's going to be. I mean, I don't know if you watched Game of Thrones, but winter is coming, and it's it's not looking good. I mean, are we prepared for it? What's going to happen with the individual hotel owner out there that's been struggling for six, seven, eight months now, and here's winter. So we need Congress to step in, right? You need Congress to. They're the only entity, aside from your banks or your lenders, that can provide the liquidity that hotels are going to need to get through this, this tough period. And so they passed PPP in the CARES Act at the beginning of the year in March and April. And so hotels had some help for the first you know, few months of the pandemic. But Congress never contemplated that we would be dealing with this well into 2021, right? So they haven't passed anything else. Some of the other programs that they passed, like the Main Street Lending Program, which was supposed to be for mid and large size businesses, have been total failures. Hotel companies haven't even been able to access any of the money uh, because of their lending rules. It's based upon an EBITDA formula, and you're prohibited from taking on additional debt to take on this, these Main Street funds. So um, they really handcuffed us, which is why we need them to pass another package. They need, at the very least, they need to pass. A second draw of PPP. There's 140 billion dollars sitting in an account that's going it's going to waste right now because they shut down the PPP program. Congress need to reauthorize needed to reauthorize access to it. The administration can't do it themselves. You know that's 140 billion that our hoteliers could be using right now to service their debt and keep their employees on payroll. But that's only 140 billion. I mean, we're hearing these trillions numbers. So 140 billion doesn't sound like a lot. No, well, it, that's just for, that's just, that's designed for small business. So that would be for your independent franchisees, anyone that's got 500 employees or less. And the goal there would be, I think Congress would plus that number up. I mean, there's, there's $300 billion sitting in that Main Street count that I just talked about. They could shift some of that over and easily pump that number up to 250 billion. Um, and then if they could actually constrict the number of, of eligible uh, companies, right? So what they failed to do on the first time on the PPP is that they did not put any guardrails in. They said any small business could apply for this funds. 
um, regardless of whether or not you're severely economically injured by the pandemic. So our hotels were competing with construction companies and uh, law firms and lobbying firms and accounting firms. Anyone that was defined as a small business could apply for a PPP loan, which is why the funds went so quickly. Um, if they put guardrails on it and basically said, you can only access this fund if you prove that you have lost revenue of 35, 40% year over year, that would keep healthier industries out of the equation and would leave more money for those of us that are severely injured. How likely are they to get, get anything passed, but certainly something with some guardrails that might be more targeted and help our industry? I think it's fairly likely. I mean, the, 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 the packages that they were talking about before the election all had language in there that provided you had to prove severe economic harm. So I think that that's likely. I also think it's very likely that they'll open up the second draw of PPP before the end of this year. They could either do it as a standalone bill because it's, it's, it's unopposed, right? Republicans, Democrats, everyone believes that this is a, a worthwhile program that small businesses need help and there's that pot of money sitting there. Um, so I think it's likely they could do it either through a COVID relief package or they could attach it to a bill, the, the continuing resolution or the omnibus appropriations bill that funds the government. And that has to be done by uh, December 11th. Uh, I don't know. So what, what's standing in the way? I mean, I know politics. politics. I understand that. Just straight politics. politics? Yeah. I, I, <sighs> so it, the challenge is, here's the challenge. So Leader McConnell, the leader of the Senate, staked out his position, basically said, he wants a skinny package or a narrow package that, that has targeted funds and he doesn't want it to be any more than a trillion dollars. That's, that's his position and that's the Senate Republican conference position. Po Speaker Pelosi and the House Democrats staked out a position originally for a package that would be about $3 trillion. She came down to about $2 trillion, but her main sticking point is that she wants significant funding for state and local governments uh, that are you know, that are hurting. They're, they're losing out on our tax revenue that help fund their government, Fed taxes, occupancy taxes, all of those things. So those are the main sticking points and each side wants a win. And so I think they can get to a win by passing a narrow COVID relief bill that would help McConnell on the one hand, on the, on the Republican side, that, that has PPP that has um, you know, unemployment insurance at a lower rate, not the $600 that was originally passed, maybe a stair-step program or something that's more like $300 for unemployment insurance. Um, and that would likely pass the Senate and Pelosi would have to, to rally the votes to get it out of the House. Then what Pelosi could do would tack on state and local funding, increased funding for testing, increased funding for hospitals. All of those could be appropriated through Congress onto either the continuing resolution bill or the omnibus appropriations bill. And that would, that would give House Democrats a win. So it would be sort of a two-step process, but you would get to the same, same end goal. I, I love it. Let's do it, Brian. Let's go. All say aye. <laughs> I, Why is it I that know. easy? So the, the one thing that's really screwing it up is, is candidly your state of Georgia and the fact that you still have two Senate seats that are outstanding, right? So control of the Senate is still up in the air. 
And so McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, is trying to figure out what helps his two candidates, his two incumbents, hold on to their seats and keeps him as the majority leader. Senator Schumer, who's the minority leader, is doing the exact same calculus. And he's trying to figure out if we give, if we support a near-term package before the special election, does that help my candidates or does it help their candidates? And so candidly, that's one of the biggest challenges we're facing is um, the unknown of who's gonna control the Senate. And that's hugely important, right? That Biden administration needs to control, wants to, the Democrats control the Senate for Supreme Court nominations, their, their cabinet officials. I mean, it's, it's hugely important. And on the Republican side, the same holds true, right? You want, Republicans want divided government. You need to have a check on the House and Speaker Pelosi and, you know, what the Biden administration is going to do. And so all eyes are on Georgia. And honestly, I feel bad for folks that live in Georgia because you guys are going to be pummeled by ads and mail and phone calls and things that you can't even imagine over the next two months. Yeah, it's already started. And I'll speak for all Georgians. We don't want any part of it. <laughs> yeah. We thought this election was over, it was behind us, we're good with the results, let's move forward. Not so fast. Now, you, now you're probably, you're going to have lots of people moving into Georgia just to deal with this election. It's going to be crazy. So uh, what, what do you see and what do you predict for Georgia? So uh, <laughs> it's close. I mean, the fact that Purdue couldn't get over 50% is, is somewhat shocking to me. But we have to keep in mind that there were third-party candidates that were drawing votes away from both sides. Um, I think the fact that Georgia is a purple state, I mean, and very purple at this point, is, is really somewhat shocking to me. Um, you know, it used to be safely Republican. Um, my best guess is that you get a split, that one of the senator, one of the re Republican incumbents wins. I'm not going to name names, but one of them wins. One of them loses. Republicans retain control of the Senate by one vote, 51-49. That sounds like a cop-out answer, Brian. <laughs> I'm saying, uh, you know, they only need one, right? Yeah, right. So if, if, I'm, if I'm McConnell, I'm basically doing the calculus, which one of these candidates has the better opportunity to win? And I'm sacrificing the other. That's, if I'm McConnell, that's my calculus. Senator Schumer and the Democrats have to run the table. They have to win both races to get to 50-50, and then Vice President Harris becomes the deciding vote. Um, so as a political scientist, this is fascinating. It's been, it hasn't been uh, recent times that we've had a divided Senate. Uh, the last time was under the Bush administration when Jim Jeffords switched from Republican to Democrat, and uh, Vice President Cheney was the deciding vote. Um, but at that time, it wasn't as contentious as it is now. Um, the, the Senate was controlled by uh, um, Trent Lott and the, the minority leader was Tom Daschle and they actually worked out an agreement for to who controlled the, sort of the power of, of the Senate and they, they both had elements that they controlled. I, I don't see any scenario where that happened this time around. All right, so um, Brian, first of all, thanks for coming on. I love this. On the heels yeah. of GF, I think you guys, HNLA, do an amazing job and you're uh, the right guy to have this in-depth detail political conversation. I obviously want to find out how this is impacting our hotel industry, right? Very biased there. Want to know with the new election and now the dust is settling and uh, let's see what, what 
might get passed, what might not. Uh, I do get we need some uh, we need to get some of these races answered behind us. But uh, what do you think happens in the lame duck session? I mean, even if we don't, I mean, if we don't get Georgia settled, does anything get accomplished, or do we have to wait for Georgia to settle before anything happens? And then the lame duck session is even tighter. Yeah, yeah, it's it's frustrating because right after the election, Mitch McConnell. Um, put out a number of statement and some tweets basically saying that he wants to begin negotiations immediately. He wants to get a COVID relief package done. Um, and that was really positive. We were hopeful that uh, we could see some, some movement. And just yesterday, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer, the Democratic leaders, sent a letter to McConnell saying, let's start negotiations. Let's get in the room. Let's start negotiating. Um, what's interesting is, um, I mean, you obviously have the Trump factor. You know, President Trump is still in office. He's going to be there until January 20th. So whatever they negotiate needs to be something that he's willing to pass. Or alternatively, uh, they need to get enough votes in the House and the Senate that he has no other option. Because the last thing he would want would be to be overridden on a, on a veto or, or something at the end of his term. Um, so it, there's interesting dynamics there. I, I, I'm hopeful that they will get a COVID relief bill passed, like we discussed before. Again, this sort of two-step process where they pass a somewhat narrow COVID relief package uh, that has PPP second draw and potentially has another broader-based lending program, but that is probably around that trillion-dollar mark. Um, and then the other thing that has to get done is that they have to fund the government. So the government funding runs out on December 11th, so they either can pass a continuing resolution, which funds the government at the exact same levels as previous, and generally CRs, as they're called in DC, uh, there's not a lot of extraneous provisions that are tacked onto CRs. You wanna do a clean CR, meaning you just fund the government at the same levels and you move forward. Or what they can do is what we call a cromnibus bill, which is just DC talk for a CR plus an omnibus. An omnibus means you take a bunch of appropriations bills that have already passed with new priorities, new funding levels, you tack it onto the CR and you pass that. So a cromnibus would be a better option for us because that means we could attach other things to it. Like, you know, say for instance, additional state and local funding, which is a Democrat priority or limited liability reform, which is a Republican priority, which is what McConnell wants. You could, you could attach other things to that bill so like we discussed before, Democrats could get a win, Republicans could get a win. And for the Biden administration, they want Congress to clear the decks. They don't want to have a scenario where Congress does nothing, the economy starts faltering, unemployment numbers go up, and they're left with this terrible situation their first couple of days in office, and they have to muster the votes to try to get a huge deal done. Um, that that's not a great scenario for the Biden administration. So you, you could see a scenario where the Biden administration and their transition team is pushing Democrats to get a deal done to clear the decks before they come into office. Interesting. That's very interesting. So that's at least their motivation to get something done instead of nothing to try to take credit. They, they can't have the time pass. Right. I mean, it, it, there, you can easily see a scenario where you know, obviously the president is still, the current president is trying to wrap his mind around what happened with the elections. 
He's not engaged on policy or any of the you know, big issues. He's not addressing the pandemic. He's not addressing the economy. So you could see a scenario where he does nothing. You could also see a scenario where Congress gets bogged down because of these Georgia Senate races and all they do is pass a CR and they leave town. So they fund the government, but they don't pass any additional relief. And then you could also see a scenario where over the next few months, during the winter months, more COVID spikes in states, states shut down, they, they uh, enforce new orders that shut down restaurants and gyms and hotels, the economy tanks, the market tanks, unemployment shoots through the roof, and now President Biden is in office and he's got a terrible situation on his hands uh, and, and needs to figure out a way to maneuver in an extremely tight House and Senate where the margins are, are slim. So for them, they're looking at it, they're like, wow, this is not a great scenario. We need Congress to actually get some relief in place to make the situation better before we're in office. Uh, and so I'm hoping that that's their mentality because candidly, that's the way I see it trending. Or, all right, how, you're not a doctor, but how about a vaccine? We're all fingers crossed, hopes and prayers yeah. resting on a vaccine. Is that false? Yeah. Oh. Lots of hope. I mean, the markets are clearly reacting that way. I mean, yeah. Pfizer, Moderna, they're, they're on, on it. I mean, I guess they need to go before the FDA and see, I don't know how long it takes for the, the FDA to move with their emergency or approval process. Um, but even still, I don't know how long it would take for them to manufacture this at such a level that um, we could get it out widespread to the, to the public. But yes, I am, I am hoping and praying that they continue on this path. Oh, okay. Uh, let, let's, let's transition. Let's, you know, talk Biden and what are his goals in his first hundred days of his administration and how might that impact our industry? Yeah. Um, good question. You know, I think I talked about it, I touched upon it before, you know, the fate of the Senate again has a huge impact on his first hundred days, right? If Republicans retain control of the Senate, they're going to have the ability to really slow down his nomination process. Um, all, all cabinet officials, secretaries, and deputy secretaries have to be Senate confirmed. So if Biden were to put up uh, a nominee that was objectionable to Republicans, they could slow down that process um, and, and force them to potentially look at another uh, nominee. Um, if Democrats get control of the Senate, that process could go a lot quicker for, for the Biden administration. So, so nominations is probably, you know, the second thing beyond filling out his immediate staff. You know, he started filling out, you know, his chief of staff and senior staff within the White House. They're all part of the transition team. That's happening. But his first priority will be nominations. His second priority will be um, executive orders. And we could see some executive orders that, that impact our industry. Um, certainly as it relates to face coverings, a face covering mandate, that would be something we're going to pay attention to. On immigration, we could see exec executive orders dealing with DACA, which is deferred action for childhood arrivals. Those are the dreamers. Uh, he could take action there. He certainly is poised to take action on some of the travel bans that he put in place, including the Muslim ban. That would certainly uh, have an impact on our industry once travel gets back. Uh, and then on labor, we could see him take executive action on some labor provisions. Some of the labor items that we dealt with under the Obama administration, issues such as blacklisting, joint employer, 
dealing with independent contractor regulations. Uh, whether he does that formally through the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board, or if he does some things through administrative action, we're going to keep a close eye on that. That's certainly an area of concern for us. Um, you know, I think the other thing we need to keep an eye on is on tax policy. Um, he certainly put out um, on his, during his platform talking about increasing uh, corporate tax rates up to potentially 28%. Uh, in a time where our industry is struggling, where a lot of industries are struggling, increasing corporate tax is probably not the best idea uh, and could be uh, serve as a suppressant as we're trying to get back on our feet once we get past this pandemic. How about uh, on labor? Do we need to be concerned about card check and minimum wage and things like that coming back? Oh, yeah. So, so minimum wage would be probably one of the first bills that will come out of the House of Representatives. Uh, likely similar to what they did last Congress, which would be a phased-in approach to get up to $15 uh, over a period of time, probably three years or five years. Uh, again, going back to the same theme, control of the Senate is really going to be important. If Republicans and Mitch McConnell will control the Senate, the $15 minimum wage will likely die in the House. Uh, it'll pass the House and die in the Senate, I should say. If Democrats control the Senate, you could easily see a scenario where a minimum wage increase is passed. Uh, and we're going to keep a close eye on that. Uh, we certainly, if the, if the Democrats control the Senate, we're going to want to work to make sure that we limit the impact of this bill as much as possible. We want to stretch out the amount of time that the minimum wage gets increased. We're going to want to keep a close eye on uh, tipped wages and make sure that they're not uh, impacted by this proposal. So. Minimum wage would be a big one. Certainly card check um, is another area. That, that bill uh, has morphed into a bill called the PRO Act, which has a lot more provisions in it. Um, again, it will likely pass the House. It depends on who controls the Senate. If, if the Republicans and McConnell control the Senate, it'll die there. Um, and so that is part of the reason why we're so incredibly focused on the state of Georgia and what happens in the Senate. Uh, divided government helps keep really bad things from happening. Uh, and talk, you talk taxes, we know the tax increases, but also capital gains and 1031 exchange taxes, which are so important to our industry. Any thoughts there? Yeah, so uh, you know, individual rates is something that the Biden administration is gonna look at. Corporate rates, uh, protecting 1031 like-kind exchanges and, and capital gains uh, is, is hugely important. Uh, he has not put out anything in writing on, on, on 1031. Uh, and so that's something that certainly AHLA and HOA and, and the, the teams up here in Washington will be reaching out to his transition team and his tax folks to explain to them how beneficial it is to, to our industry and to, to small businesses across the country who are trying to, to grow their businesses. So um, definitely an area of focus for us uh, and one that we're going to need to keep an eye on. Uh, Brian, this is great. Thank you. Uh, anything we should know that you guys are working on today, tomorrow, a year from now that uh, might come to pass that's going to help our industry either at the banking level or at the labor level or uh, stimulus, any of that kind of stuff that we should know about? Yeah. So we think about our priorities in three main buckets, right? So we're thinking about our workforce and, and the impact it's having on workers. And so how do we um, make sure that they are taken care of. 
how do we make sure that they have a job to return to, right? So liquidity is, is king here. So the PPP program, the second draw of PPP, allows for employers to keep employees on payroll. So that's one of our top priorities. We need that second draw of PPP and we need it to be a much larger number. To your point, Teague, 140 billion doesn't go very far. But if they plus that up to 250 billion or 300 billion, you know, that's real money and that will help save a lot of employees and a lot of businesses. On the liquidity side, um, we need the federal government to provide liquidity to businesses that are struggling. Uh, they included in the CARES Act originally um, in a section dealing with troubled debt restructuring. So allowing banks the ability to negotiate with their borrowers and, and provide them forbearance and flexibility. That section of the CARES Act expires at the end of this year. And so we need to extend that section of the CARES Act for troubled debt restructuring to allow banks to have the authority to provide forbearance and flexibility moving forward. And that's gonna be a priority for AHLA and for AHO. We're working together on that. And we think we have a good shot at getting that done. Um, there's a couple of other things that we've been working on. We've been working on uh, CMBS, the commercial mortgage-backed securities issue. There's about $90 billion worth of debt held in CMBS. Uh, and a lot of those, those loans are now going to special servicing. That's a real issue for us. Um, uh, so that's another area of liquidity. We're also exploring the idea of a hotel industry centric lending facility or a bill that would be directed towards the hotel industry. That's more of a longer term program. It would need to be part of a much bigger package, uh, but that's also a priority for us. So we're thinking about liquidity. How do we inject more liquidity in the market? How do we help provide uh, forbearance and flexibility on the banking side? And, and what can the Fed do? I touched upon this earlier, but the Fed established the Main Street Lending Program, which was supposed to be you know, a $500 billion program for mid to large size businesses. It has been an abject failure. So is there a new lending facility that Congress, or the, that Congress could set up through the Fed that would be a longer term loan program that has more favorable terms so that our industry can access that money? Um, that's a huge priority too. I, I love hearing all of this, Brian. Honestly, I do, especially the liquidity near and dear to our hearts. We need it right now. There's none. There's no transactions. There's no lenders that are going to lend on anything. Everybody's fighting with their current lender, trying to figure out how they can get through this. I mean, there's obviously a ton of headwinds, things we've never experienced in our industry, and, and we need all the help we can get. Yeah, uh, liquidity yeah. being, being the main one. So God, thrilled that you guys are working on it. Yeah, the other two buckets would be sort of on tax reform. So Congress needs to do tax extenders at some point. So we could see a scenario where there could be tax provisions to help businesses provide PPE to their employees, the employee retention tax credit for those employers that have kept their employees on their health care. That would be helpful. Work opportunity tax credit. Those are all things that benefit the employee and the employer. And then the third major bucket is, is on liability reform. And this is a political hot potato, but getting some sort of federal standard for liability reform for businesses that meet federal CDC standards. What we're doing also is working with state associations across the country, including down in Georgia, to pass state limited liability or, or safe haven provisions on the state level. So if the federal government's unable to actually pass federal limited liability reform, 
we need as many states to pass it to protect businesses from frivolous lawsuits moving forward. That would be a job killer and really hurt our, our um, recovery during this, during this time. Uh, Brian, thank you, thank you for coming on. This is great. Um, I, we need, I'm gonna keep having you back on in the future so you keep telling us what we need to be paying attention for. I should probably wait till after we get some more certainty in the, with Georgia and the other uh, places out there so you can really know what's gonna happen. Yeah, anytime, Teague. And let me make one last plug. AHLA has a grassroots portal called Hotels Act where it's free for anyone in the hotel industry. So you don't have to, you know, it's for downstream vendors, anyone that's connected to the hotel industry, it's free, you sign up. It's a grassroots portal. It connects you directly to your congressmen and senators. All you have to do is put in your name, your zip code, and it auto-populates a letter or an issue. Um, and then you also get signed up for our hotel lobby, which is our you know, weekly update that provides information on what's happening on Capitol Hill and across the country. You know, it, our advocacy efforts through the pandemic have been incredible. We had about 5,000 people that were signed up for uh, Hotels Act at the beginning of the pandemic. We're now approaching 60,000 people that have signed up, which is great. But in an industry that employs about 8 million people, we should be well north of that. And so we need more people to advocate for our industry, sign up for Hotels Act. And honestly, if you're in business, you got to get into politics because everything that Washington's doing, what your state capital's doing, what your counties are doing is having an impact on your bottom line. And so if you're not advocating for your business, you're doing a disservice to yourself and your employees. So sign up for Hotels Act. Uh, and help us advocate for the industry. I, I, I don't want to get into politics, Brian. I, that's why we have you. Um, <laughs> uh, so where do we go? I, to need, sign up? I need help. I need help. All right, we'll help you. Where do you, where do we go to sign up again? So you go to ahla.com backslash hotels act. It's free. It takes about a, a second to put in your information and that's all it takes. All right, we'll go do it. Everybody go do it. Uh, Brian, you're Jim. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and let's keep fighting the fight. Thanks, T. Appreciate you having me on.